we're going to read the whole chapter. In Iconium. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from from heaven and crops in their seasons, He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and, with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Thanks, Jono. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Let's open a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you so much for the blessing it is to be able to open it and see the amazing work that you do through mere people like us. We thank you for the ministry that you entrusted to Paul and Barnabas and to the apostles throughout the centuries, your people throughout the centuries, who have faithfully proclaimed your gospel. So this morning, Lord, we ask that you will teach us and you will reveal to us the truths of your word to change us, to challenge us, to convict us, and to bring us more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, this chapter, in chapter 14 of Acts, 
is a big chapter. And I'm not actually going to preach from that chapter per se, more in the sense that that is a springboard with which we're going to look at the series for the next few weeks. In Acts chapter 13, what you have is a change of dynamic within the church. Up until this point, most of the ministry, most of the evangelism, most of the things have involved Hebrew people. We can at Hebrew people, as in the disciples, reaching out to Hebrew non-believers. In Acts chapter 13, there's a slight change, and with Paul and Barnabas, what then happens is that the dynamic, fo- the dynamic or the focus of the gospel message now goes out to the Gentiles, and they go stepping out, and, and this is the first thing of it, and that's what I really like about it, because as you read through this chapter, you see some amazing things take place. Uh, for example, in verses 1 to 7, which we're not going to look at, I'm going to do something a little bit different today. Um, I've only got two Bible readings up on the slides. Uh, we have that first reading, and then we have one reading at the end. Everything else you're going to have to look at in your Bibles, and I would appreciate that, which means the challenge for me is to speak slowly and clearly so that we can go on this journey together and no truths are lost. But in verses 1 to 7, we have at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas going into the synagogues, doing what they usually do, reaching out with the gospel and proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ to the Jews. So much so that we read in verse 3, they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. They bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But even while they're doing that, they encountered opposition. As you read in Timothy, yea, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And yet they went faithfully. And you notice this with Paul. No matter where he goes, he reaches out with the gospel. Where does he go? He goes to Lystra. And at Lystra, he shares a message, firstly, after healing a lame man that had been lame from birth. And they wanted to proclaim the wonderful, life-transforming message of Jesus Christ. Instead, the reaction they got was far than the desired result, because in verse 15, we read them, we read of them explaining to these people, we also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And that is in verse 19. Why? Because after they healed this, this lame man, they first think the gods have come down to us. And they referred to Paul as being Hermes because he was the one that spoke. And they referred to Barnabas as being Zeus, the chief god of their particular belief system. That's not something they did not want to be worshipped. Then what happens is that from, I think it was from Antioch and from Iconium, a whole bunch of stirrers. Once again, the unbelieving Jews come around and they start stirring up trouble and they get those same people who were supposed worshippers of these guys to become their primary persecutors. So much so that what happens to Paul? When he has this heavy cost of pay, in verse, sorry, in verse 19 he says, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. Straight away. So these people who sat there and they reject their worship, then turn on them, stone them, drag them out, and say, there you go. What's this? If you read in verse 20, what does Paul do? Paul miraculously survives, gets up, and goes back into the city that he was just stoned in. And then the next day, they say, look, you should really move off to Derby. 
In verses 24 to 28, they go back to Antioch. And we read what they do, the ministry for the church and the ministry for the saints in verse 27 is that they gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So you look at just in the single chapter how these two men are used by God to proclaim the gospel to the Jews and synagogues and find persecution. They go to another place, heal the men, reject worship that is given to them, reject human acknowledgement, which in turn involves them being physically abused. Physically abused. Then they carry on, continuing to proclaim the word of God to people that they encounter, together with the saints back at Antioch, and proclaim the wonders of what God had been doing. Just as a side note, this is one of the blessings I really enjoy when I hear people share their testimonies. The encouragement that is felt, because you imagine how the church felt when these guys came back. Man, we had it hard, but did you see what God did? And that would have encouraged people. Man, Paul, he was stoned. We thought he was dead, but did you see what God did? Man, we went over here and we, we healed this man and people tried to worship us, but did you see what God did? To have someone come up here and proclaim of what God is doing has nothing to do with you as an individual, but directs all our focus upon a great God who demonstrates his love toward us time and time again. So whenever you have a testimony to share, please don't hold it to yourself. Because when you share the testimony of how God has blessed you, you bless us in return. But this is the challenge as I looked at. This is the springboard in Acts chapter 14. What was it that these guys had? Why, why is it that they had such courage, such an emboldened passion, such desire to obey what God had laid upon their hearts and to fulfill the call that God had placed in their lives? The fact that the place where Paul was stoned was the first place that he went to. The fact that even though they knew the Jews despised the very name of Jesus Christ, they go to Jewish synagogues to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered, as you have read through the, the, the Acts of the Apostles, what it is that had convinced these men, what had captivated their hearts so much, what had persuaded them to, as John shared last week in Psalm 63, verse 3, that his loving kindness is better than life. That when they looked at this and they realized this is worth so much more, that's the reality of Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What brought them to that point? And so this next several weeks, with the exception of November 18th, which is when Pastor Lawrence Siao is here, we're going to look at this. We're going to examine, biblically, the motivations that they had that motivated them to give everything, a, a total commitment, uh, an unabashed resolve to walk faithfully with Jesus Christ. And, and as we look, and I would encourage you to do this yourself, as you read through the book of Acts yourself, if God would identify for you, identify for you what it was about them. Well, okay, even then that's the wrong focus. What it was that it convinced them about God to do what they did and to live faithfully. And that's what we're going to address this month. We're going to look at the Acts of the Apostles. It's a, it's a study in the pursuit of Jesus Christ. 
So I'm going to look at, there, there are four motivations that I identified, and I'm going to look at one. I only want to look at one each week because I'm hoping that that one would soak and immerse us within the Word of God, that it'd be something that is not just known up here, but challenges us in here and, and motivates us to, to walk in accordance with God's Word and with God's heart. So as cliche as this may sound and as corny as this sound, the motivation for Paul and Barnabas as I read through this chapter and as I read through Paul's story is love. That's it, is love. A love for God and a love for people. And I know it sounds cliche and I know it sounds Sunday school-like, Sunday school lesson-like, but have you seen what love can do? Have you seen how love motivates? Have you seen how love would protect a young child when a mother who might be timid will jump in to protect the life of her child irrespective of what the opposition is? Have you seen that? Have you seen where a dad would take on an army for the sake of protecting his wife and children? Have you seen that? I, I know and I have seen this with my father-in-law who worked two full-time jobs to support his family so his, so his wife didn't have to work, so the wife could stay home and care for the children. And he did that for decades. He would work 10 hours, go home, sleep for two to three hours, get up, work another 10 hours. And he did that. He had eight children and he worked two full-time jobs. Have you seen, why would he do that? Did he love work? Did he love staying away from home? Maybe. No, he did it because he loved his wife and he loved his kids. Have you seen what love can do? How love sacrifices, how love offers where a parent would go without food so their children could eat. How I remember one of, one of my parents that worked 24 hours, nonstop, just 24 hours the whole day. My mom did that. She just worked 24 hours in order to get bills paid. You see what love can do. And we have an idea of what love is, but to a limited extent. We do have an ability to love. Yes, we do. We have a, the ability to express deep affection and care for someone else. We demonstrate this love when we are willing to make a commitment in the covenant of marriage where we stand before everyone else with God as our witness and our witnesses around us where we say, I 100% are yours. And the person in response says, I am 100% yours. And you see this love demonstrated and when they give of each other and then when they have children and, and you see that love expressed and how they care for those kids. You see this, and, and that picture of love, of, of self-sacrifice, of, of willing to give oneself over, is motivated solely by love. You've seen this. Those of you who are married, you identify with that, but that is just a small picture, a small image of the divine love that God has for us as His people, that God has for us as His creation. And what's crazy is that even with our capacity to love, we do not have that capacity to love God. It is beyond our ability to love God the same way that He loves us. It is totally foreign to us. It is totally foreign to us. We need to make note about that because we do not initiate a love for God. 
God initiates that love toward us. And the reason why I know this is because as you read through the scriptures, you see time and time again how we as people don't want anything to do with God. For example, if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, which a lot of us need know off the top of our heads. But in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, we see the scriptures say this, that there is none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. You read in Romans chapter 3, verse 18, that there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is our natural state as people. We do not want anything to do with God. That's just our nature. We are, as the Scriptures teach, an enemy of God. John chapter 3, 19 says this, There is that light has come into the world, and man loved darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. We don't have the capacity to love God, and the only reason we do is because God took the initiative toward us. I'll explain that in a moment. You see, our love, more, more often than not, is directed at ourselves and not toward God. That is, unless somebody initiates something toward us and we in turn respond. Now, I don't know if how many of you guys remember high school. Some of you guys remember high school like it was yesterday. Some of you remember high school like it was decades ago. But have you ever sort of like someone said, hey, hey, somebody likes you. And you're like, oh, really? I, I, know, I know when, see, as a guy, as a guy, I, I've never had anybody come up to me and say that they like me. Never. Never. Everyone that's giggles probably sitting there saying, I can see why. But anyway, I can see why. Yeah. John was like, yeah, John was like, yeah, that's right, that's right. But here's the thing. Sometimes when somebody, when somebody initiates, what happens? We respond. That's the way we're designed. Somebody initiates and we respond. Somebody initiates with anger, we often respond in anger. Somebody initiates in compassion, we often respond in compassion. Somebody initiates with hate, we often respond with hate. It's the way we are, it's the mentality that we have as people, isn't it? But we are told in 1 John chapter 4, 19, what? We love Him, God. Why? Because He first loved us. It's a response. We see the love of God manifest in the person of Jesus Christ and think, wow! And we respond to that. And this is what Paul experienced. The only reason Paul can profess that he loves God is because God expressed his love toward him first. And because he experienced that, he responded in overwhelming generosity to God's abundant goodness in the person of Christ. And, and you see this. You see this when you compare how Paul was before to how he is now. If you read in Acts chapter uh, 9, Verses 1 and 2. Acts chapter 9 is the testimony of Paul's conversion. But in Acts chapter 9, you see a man who is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. 
and went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, which is what they called Christianity, any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul, as he was known then, was the fulfillment of Jesus' prophetic word in John 16, verse 2. B, the second part, where Jesus said, the hour is coming when whoever kills you thinks he is doing God a service. And it's reiterated by Paul himself when he writes to the Galatian church. Galatians 1, uh, verse 13 and 14 says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Verse 14, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. This was the state that Paul was in. And I guarantee he would have performed some horrendous acts in the name of his belief system, thinking he was doing service to God, trying to rid people of what he deemed as an idolatrous belief system of worshiping this person called Jesus Christ, who, if you recall, I believe it was in Acts chapter 8, when he was consenting to the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of Jesus Christ, who would go to people and get permission and say, I want to find these people, I want to track them down, and I want to hurt them because they're going against what I believe. And he went about, and man, he was good at his job. He was good at his job. And it was in this state of enmity toward God and toward God's people that God met him, that God revealed himself to him, that while he was in the midst, on the road to Damascus, on a road called Straight, that he encounters the person of Jesus Christ. And it was there, it was there that Jesus revealed to him the truth of himself. You want to know what motivated Paul? What motivated Paul was the fact that he was overwhelmed with a love so great a grace so grand that it took him as a murderer, that it took him as a person in direct opposition to him, that it took him as a sinful man, as a self-righteous man, and forgave him. That's what motivated him, that he, as someone as wretched, as he refers to himself in Timothy, the chief of sinners, that as a chief of sinners, he found acceptance. That as the chief of sinners, he found love. That as the chief of sinners, he experienced just a grand encompassing of everything, all his faults, and to be made new. And to think that this man was so transformed that if you read in Galatians chapter 1, verse 23, this is the reputation that other people had of him when he first became a believer. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. What can transform a person's heart that amazingly? Fear? Eh, maybe. But fear can only get you so far. Duty? Eh, maybe. But duty, duty becomes very religious, doesn't it? Same with obligation. Fear, duty, uh, debt? Eh, maybe. But even debt, has its limitations you want to know something that can take somebody from being full-on aggro towards one thing saying i'm gonna get you i'm gonna kill you i'm gonna destroy you to bring you to the other side and say i'm gonna love on you i'm gonna forgive you 
I'm going to share with you a transforming message. What can do that? Love. Love. A divine, unexplainable love that is beyond human comprehension and is beyond our ability. This is why it is not a part of us. And you know how I know it is not a part of us? Because I don't like people. There are people we don't like, isn't there? You look around. There may be somebody within this building right now where you look at and think, ah, yeah, I don't like you. I don't like you. That shows me, and the fact that people are like, <laughs> they might be looking at me, hey, I don't like you, Joe. I don't. That is okay. That is okay. I don't mind it. But I'm saying this, this is why we are in need of a grace and of a love that can change us just as it changed Paul. And to take him from somebody that was like, wow, this is what I want to be now. I want to be the very person that I've desired to get rid of. Paul had been the recipient of unconditional grace, loving acceptance, and abundant mercy. Paul, in examining his life before his encounter with Jesus, was one full of conviction and passion, but it was conviction and passion for the wrong things. Now, when he had the truth revealed to him, when God opened his eyes in his encounter with Jesus Christ, he had that same passion and that same desire, but now for the things of Jesus Christ. I want to read to you from Acts chapter 9. If you have the, your Bibles, Acts chapter 9. I'm going to read from verses 3 to verse 6. He, Saul, approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. In his encounter of Jesus Christ, there was a transformation. In the encounter with Jesus Christ, there was a challenge. In the encounter with Jesus Christ, there was a humbling of everything that he thought gave him value, a humbling which now brought him to a place of asking for help. And then you read here in verse 12 when he sees Anna, when the Lord appears to Ananias, uh, he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. In this encounter, Jesus reveals himself to Saul confronted his views and ideologies of who Jesus Christ was, he was literally blindsided by this challenge which caused him to rethink who Jesus is. And the conclusion Saul reached when love reached out to him on the road called Straight was that Jesus is Lord. That was the conclusion he, he knew. Saul knew he deserved judgment. As a zealous Pharisee, he understood the seriousness of sin's offense. As a teacher of the law, he saw the condemnation he was under, all of which helped him believe, receive, and surrender to the grace displayed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, for even as one such as him. Which means he would do what he did now because of the love that granted him forgiveness. Paul's motivation had to come from a place of a genuine response for what Jesus had done for him. Remember? 
We love him because he first loved us. It is a motivation, as I shared, it is a motivation not birthed from obligation or duty, because obligation or duty implies that there is something about our effort that can play a part in our redemption. That's why we don't serve out of obligation or duty. The scriptures teach, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, no good thing dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. See, that, that's what happens. Obligation or duty by the works of the flesh. No, no, no life shall be justified. We are told that within the scriptures. It doesn't originate from debt. Our, our motivation originate from debt. That doesn't actually work because there's no good thing in us. And the fact of the matter is, what is it that we have to offer? Turn with your Bibles in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 3. You know this verse, and I've shared this verse before, but I'll just, I'll just read it out. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 3. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. See, what we offer in our sinful state and our helpless state is what? Ashes, mourning, heaviness. That's the best we have to offer. So in the sense of we are being obedient or motivated by debt, trying to pay God back for what he has given us, you cannot outgive God. You can't outgive God. It is, a, it is a physical, spiritual, emotional possibility for us to try and outgive God. Our nature says this, if someone gives you something, what's the first thing you want to do? Give it back. Not, not as in, not, that sounded bad. Hey, hey, Jono gave me a hat. Thanks, Jono. Here, have it back. No, it's, it's like, if Jono, for example, Jono just came back from the U.S., Jono and Chris, and he got me a Kango. I, I really like these hats. I always have. So he got me a hat. Somebody said, I needed a hat like this, and then I can go play chess out in a park. I need to learn how to play chess. But, so the first thing we do when we get given something, what do we want to do? I want to get Jono a hat. Maybe I'll just wrap up this one and give it back to him. I don't know. But th that's what we do, isn't it? It happens at Christmas time. Someone gives you a box of cookies, you give them a box of cookies, or you might rewrap it. Or that box of cookies you get given, you give to somebody else and rewrap it. I, I don't know. Uncle Stephen's laughing quite hard. I, that needs, you must be doing that a lot, brother. But isn't, isn't that, our, isn't that our, our mentality? Isn't that our idea that when somebody gives us something, we, we want to be respectful? It's not, there's nothing bad about that. There's nothing wrong with that. But we like to try and give something back because they've given something to us, correct? We look at the salvation that we've been given in Jesus Christ, and what do we try to do? We try to pay him back. We try to sit there and say, yeah, I, well, you gave to me, Lord. I'm going to give to you. And we try to outgive God. The thing is, we are physically unable to do so. What does he desire from us? Submission. What does he desire from us? Humility. What does he desire from us? Dependence. What does he desire from us? The acknowledgement for his glory. Reliance upon him. That's, that's not serving out of debt. We are indebted, yes. But there's nothing we can do to pay him back. We merely acknowledge him for that and then say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and see what God does. Because one cannot outgive God. 
Our, our motivation isn't birthed by fear, even though the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We read in Psalm 111, verse 10, as well as a couple of times in Proverbs. But a relationship that is sustained by fear isn't really a relationship. Or if it is a relationship, it is a relationship based upon tyranny. Now look, it is wonderful that the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, yes. But what I have found, if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, in Psalm 111, the second part of that verse says, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. See, fear is a wonderful, it gives you a respect, it gives you the acknowledgement of, yes, that's the rightful position that one holds. But as you grow in knowledge of that relationship, what happens? You become to appreciate. You come to love. You come to walk in that love that you've grown to appreciate. That's what happens naturally. That's... Uh, my dad, I, I, I remember growing up, my dad, very, very hard man, very hard man, loved my dad immensely, very strict, I've been smacked by him so many times, can I say that 99% of those smacks I got, I deserved, the 1%, not so much, but I probably leant towards that anyway, but I, I, had, I did have a fear of my dad, and it got to the point, though, where my dad was around, I didn't like being in his presence because I was fearful that I would do something wrong and then get another smack. Does that make sense? You mean to say that that's the relationship our Lord desires for us? No, not at all. While the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it's the establishing of knowledge of who He is that we grow to love Him. Where He invites and says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Him who invites us to be within His presence, who says to enter into the throne room of grace and make our requests known unto Him, does that sound like a place of fear? No! Why? Because our relationship is not based upon fear. This is why how love sustains it, what Paul says to the Corinthian church. Um, when speaking to the Corinthian church, he says what? That it was Christ's love that compels us. That it's Christ's love that constrains. That it's Christ's love that motivates. That is to be the primary factor of our relationship with Jesus Christ to do what we do and, and live obediently is because of our love for Him. That's it. That's where it starts. This is why Paul, when stoned by people at Lystra, could go back into that same city the very moment he was stoned because of his love for God and his love for people. This is why they can go into synagogues. Every time they went to a synagogue, they knew they were going to encounter opposition. But that didn't matter. Why? Because of his love for God and his love for people. This is the reason why he traveled. And when you read how he was shipwrecked and he was in the sea for three days, when he was beaten and whipped, why he endured all those things because of his love for God and his love for people. That's all it was. It was the love of Christ that constrained him. That word constrain, it means it's captivated you. It's bound you that there's nothing else you can do but be held fast by it. And as you're held fast, you respond accordingly to that. That's why when you read through the book of Acts, you see how these people could do what they could do because of their love for God and their love for people, which is in direct response to God's love for them. And that can't be taken, that can't be substituted. That can't be changed. 
So my question to me is this, how then do I grow in love for God and in love for people? How then do I mature in my relationship of love? And this is the challenge for us as the people of God. If, if love is to be the motivation to do what we do, if the love of Christ is to compel us into action, then how do we respond to that love? You know what we do? And we follow the example of Paul. We see ourselves firstly and honestly in relation to Jesus Christ. Meaning this, we spend our time comparing ourselves to him, revealing our need for him. What I mean by that is this, we spend much of our time comparing ourselves to others. We do. I'm not the best worker, but I could be worse. Oh, I'm not the greatest leader, but it's better than nothing. I'm not morally perfect, but I have some good qualities about me that could be considered. Uh, which is silly because 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says this. We do not dare to classify, our, classify ourselves or compare ourselves with some who commend it themselves. So basically what it means is this. If Ash is walking around saying, yes, I am the man. I am amazing. And then we spend all our time comparing, well, Ash is, pre- Ash, and Ash is pretty amazing. But if I use him as my standard of saying, I want to compare myself to that guy, that's dumb. Not he's not, no, that's dumb. Not him, me, comparing myself to him. That's silly. You can carry on reading. When they measure themselves by themselves or compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. You will always find someone worse to make you look better. You will always find someone better to make you look worse. When we see ourselves in relation to Jesus, then we see what we are really like, just like Paul did. Sinners deserving of judgment, broken souls in need of healing, enemies of God in need of reconciliation. Someone once stressed to me, once stressed to me at, at the school, you only follow Jesus because you're afraid of judgment. You only serve Jesus because you're scared of him or because you have con- you're going to be condemned. I was thinking about that. I said, that's not the case, is it? We have this misconception of where we stand before God. For some reason, we think, yeah, we're okay, and if I don't believe in Jesus, Jesus will send me to hell to suffer the judgment for my sin. Well, that's not what the Scriptures teach. What the Scriptures teach is that we are already condemned. We are already sufferers of judgment. To sit there and say that the only reason I do what I do is to avoid being cast into hell by believing in Jesus is wrong. It's like saying to a person that's already in prison serving two life sentences, you're going to experience another life sentence. Because he's already there, correct? He's already in prison. He's already there. He's already suffering judgment. What the big deal is, is when someone comes up and says, you're set free from prison. That's what makes the difference. We are already condemned according to the Scriptures. We are already destined. We we are on the wide road, heading to destruction. That's where we're going. The big deal is when Jesus Christ came down in the form of a man, 
lived a perfect life, died on a cross to take me off that road. That's what makes it such a big deal. That's why Paul understood it to be such a big deal. And because he understood that, he was humbled by the person of Christ, knowing what he did deserve, and yet that's not what he got. He experienced the mercy of Jesus Christ. And this is what led to the second point. How do we grow in love? Yeah, to see ourselves honestly in relation to Jesus Christ, but also to understand that even in that state as being an enemy of God, we are loved by Jesus Christ. And this is what captured Paul. We are loved not because we are lovable. We are loved not because we are deserving of that love. We are loved not because we earn that love. And that's really crazy because that flies in the face of many ideologies today, isn't it? It, So many ideologies today sit there and talk about, yeah, you, you love you. Let no one say otherwise. Yeah, yeah. But that's what, that's what happens, isn't it? And that's, what, that's what everybody says today to you and sit there and say, well, no, I'm not. I'm actually a sinner in need of love. And we're looked at as being archaic and, and being out of touch with reality. But that is not what the Scriptures teach. We are loved because God loves us. We are loved because God is love. We are loved because we are made in His image. We are loved that even though we have rejected Him, He pursued us. He pursued us and went to the greatest extremists of lengths to bring us back to Himself. That's what Paul couldn't understand, but he accepted and believed. That's what I don't get. What makes me so lovable? Nothing. It's because He loves me. That's it. And that He has taken me from this place of condemnation and judgment and of sinfulness and says, There, Joe, you are my child and I died for you and I love you and I bring you into my family. That, that, should that not excite our hearts? Should that not excite my heart? Thank you. Thank you so much this is why john 3:16 is so important that he so loved you that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life to know that you are loved especially when you don't deserve it should stir within you a response that works its way into our outward conduct to know that excites our hearts so if the first point to grow in love is to spend time with Jesus looking within the scriptures seeing how much he loves you I would encourage you to do this just to recount the amazing things God has done to to understand that even in that sinful state the way God has overlooked or has the scriptures teach how perfect love casts out fear that we have been accepted even in our sinfulness because of Jesus Christ. That third thing we can do is to stay, to cherish, and protect that relationship we have with Him. Uh, the call of husbands in First Peter is to dwell with your wives according to knowledge. What that means is this. It doesn't mean just to be in the same room with them. It doesn't mean just to fill up physical space. What it means is to dwell with them with knowledge, means to understand and to know who they are, how they think, why they think the way they think, which is real, really cool 
and sometimes challenging because females think so differently to guys. And that's not a bad thing. But I'm saying to dwell with knowledge means that you want to spend time with them. Hang on a second. If that's the case, if that sort of relationship to be protected is a marriage relationship, then imagine the relationship we share with our Lord Jesus. To spend time in His presence, to spend time in His Word, to dwell with Him. And what you'll find is this, that all by itself, your love will start to grow for Him. In that presence with Him, you recount those things that He has done. When you look at, for example... You woke up this morning and you were blessed. You were blessed to have a breath. God gifted you that breath. You, 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 you got to drive in your car today. You got to drive in your car today. You got to chill, enjoy the sun. Thank you, Lord, for a beautiful day. You, the fact that you get to walk, thank you, Lord, that I can walk. The fact that, the fact that you have family members, that you have this beautiful, beautiful family here, a gathering of believers here, Thank you. These are all, you could recount things. If you spent like a day just writing down everything from the smallest to the greatest of what God has given you in Jesus Christ, then what John says, the end of John says, that all the books on the earth would not be big enough to contain all the miraculous and great works that he has done for you. And when you see that, does that not increase your love for him? When I look at what my wife does for me, what my wife does for the kids, how my wife puts up with me, and how my wife is understanding and generous, every time I see her, I think, what a blessed man that I am to have a woman such as this. And my love for her is growing. We celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary on Tuesday. 25 years we've been married. 25 years. And I think now, 25 years later, I think I love her more now than what I did then. And that's been, been time with her. Spending time with her. So it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, Jude 20 or 21 says this. Uh, sorry, Jude 20 and 21 says this. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in God's love. If you do that, your love for Him will grow. Not by force, not by sheer determination, but by naturally being in the presence of your Lord, it'll help. It'll happen. It'll happen. It just happens. It's the way God's designed our relationship to work. I want to share with you. You see these three things. I want, to, I want to close with this reading from Luke 7. And you know this, verse 37 to 47, which says this. Next one, bro. Behold the woman of the city. This is at Simon, the Pharisee's house. And while Jesus is sharing in a meal with the with these leaders, a woman comes and washes his feet with an ointment, a very expensive ointment. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet and weeping, she began to wet his feet and her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? 
I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You do not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. In the presence of Jesus, she saw herself as she really was. And you'll notice that she didn't worry about what the other religious, thought, religious leaders thought of her. The only thing that concerned her was being in the presence of Jesus. She saw who she really was in relation to him, not in relation to everybody else. And in that realization, she humbled herself before him. And in that humility, Jesus shows a love and acceptance that she may never have been accustomed to. A love that she appreciated so much that when Jesus was arrested and crucified, she remained. A, a, a love that she felt so deeply that when there was no one that went to her tomb, went to Jesus' tomb, even though the soldiers may have been there, she went. A love, a love that she was captivated by that when she was at the tomb, that Jesus revealed himself to the ladies first. This is the motivation of the apostles, yes. This is the motivation of, of what these men had been captivated by a love that pursued them. And, and this, this is, I guess, the first challenge for us. That we see ourselves the way Jesus sees us, yes. But we see ourselves openly in relation to him. That we spend time with him, recounting that. And to know irrespective of our state, we are loved by him. May our hearts grow in love for our Lord that is demonstrated in how we live. Not in word, not in thought, but in actual deed. And that's the challenge that's laid before us. I didn't realize it's after midday. So I'm going to invite the prayer team to come up, please. And I'm going to close in prayer. If you want to be prayed for, prayed for healing, as we heard from our brother Eugene today, if you want to be prayed, pray about, I don't know, maybe we've left our first love as the church of Ephesus did in Revelation 2. Maybe we want that restored. Maybe we want to sort of reprioritize things in our own life, whatever it might be. But I'd like you all to be upstanding and we'll close in prayer now. And if you want to be prayed for, I would love to pray for you. We would love to pray for you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the examples of the apostles, and we thank you for the fact that it's not because of these men who are of like nature as we are, but rather because of what you had done through them. Father, as you captivated their hearts and convinced them to fully resolve and serve you faithfully and lovingly, may you do the same for us. Father, we are challenged that we may only love little because we understand we've only been forgiven little. Help us to understand the seriousness of what's taken place in our lives. That because of Jesus Christ, we have been made new. Because of Jesus Christ, we have had our sin forgiven. Because of Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, we too have the honor and privilege to die and rise again also. So we commit ourselves to you this day. Please lay upon our hearts a burden for the love of God. A burden to love you. And because of our love for you, we love others. And we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you very much, brothers and sisters.